This is Greg Lois. Thanks for joining me today. And we're going to be talking about the defense of uh, workers' compensation claims in New Jersey. Uh, today is the last Monday of the month, and that is always our New Jersey webinar. So I'm glad everybody's here today. I'm going to briefly touch on a COVID-19 update, sort of bring everybody up to speed about what's going on on those claims, what the status of the current legislation is. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about some firm news, some information about the firm. Uh, and then we're going to dive into talking about today's topic. Now, this is completely and totally live as always. So I'm hoping that everyone out there is going to give me as many questions as you can. It makes it so much more fun. Uh, please don't feel like you can only ask questions about employee status. I really am looking forward to questions on any topic, including anything I've mentioned today about COVID-19 or coronavirus. So uh, thanks for joining me here today. I hope everybody is home safe happy, healthy, secure, hope your families are doing well. Uh, I strongly believe this panic is almost behind us and we're gonna be back to real life uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, so let's talk uh, really quickly about some firm information, then I'm gonna get right into COVID-19 and then employment status. Again, thanks for joining me. Uh, please type in your questions as we go. I will answer them as many as I can at the end. Um, if you're watching this, I'm presuming by now you have a copy of one of our 2020 handbooks for New York, New Jersey. We have a longshore handbook and new this year is my partner Tashia Razul's construction defense handbook and that is particularly for those of us defending dual jurisdiction claims, claims uh, involving a construction loss where there is a civil lawsuit as well as the workers' compensation claim and the interplay between those two types. Uh, our monthly schedule of webinars, always the first Monday of the month, is our construction defense webinar. Uh, second Monday of the month is always our civil or risk transfer webinar. We talk primarily about risk transfer opportunities in various states and how best we can get our money reimbursed to return to us. Uh, third Monday of the month, we have multiple sessions of our New York Workers' Compensation webinar, again, always live. And then the last Monday of the month, the fourth Monday of the month, is always our New Jersey Workers' Comp webinar. And just because it's the last Monday of the month doesn't mean uh, it's not important to us, uh, but uh, this is the day you always know this last Monday of the month, you can tune in and start answering us questions about what's going on in New Jersey. If you're working with this firm currently, and I hope everyone watching today is, uh, you've started to see some new communications coming from us. All of our emails have changed. Our emails now from this firm include multiple buttons on the bottom that you can use. Uh, the buttons I wanna point out to everyone is there's now a one-click button, so you can refer us a new matter for handling. Our firm standard is to open up and have all pleadings filed within one business day of you referring us a new matter. That's all defenses interposed, all pleadings filed, all discovery served. And in New Jersey, that's incredibly important, and particularly with these coronavirus claims, where we are going to want to be absolutely serving discovery demands on our adversary and looking at what their disclosures are telling us to help us defend these claims. Uh, also, in every email, there's a button, and I want to point this out to my clients. You can click that, and it'll take you to an easy five-question survey. We're really asking you, uh, through a series of drop-downs and some basic, basic questions, to rate the service we're providing. Incredibly important to us to get your feedback about how we're doing for you. Is the attorney uh, paralegal team that's working on this matter with you, are they serving your needs? Are they giving you a clear action plan? Are they being responsive? Are they being aggressive? Are they moving your case to closure? We know that's what matters to you and that's what matters to us. And we are very carefully tracking that. So if you're currently working with the firm, uh, please use those buttons. Let us know how we're doing. Uh, and uh, there's a, a check mark you can put in there and say, I want Greg to call me about the service I'm getting on this file. I want Greg to personally look into this and uh, get some feedback from Greg directly. And I'm very happy to do that if you're working with us now. All right, let's do a quick COVID-19 update. Uh, we've been doing webinars on this topic 
as new information has emerged. And frankly, things have kind of flattened out and we're starting to see uh, if both the cases come in and also we've been tracking the legislation. We've been tracking the legislation that's been occurring or proposed in New York, as well as the legislation in New Jersey. So the good news is New York and New Jersey, no new legislation has passed about coronavirus and workers' compensation uh, since our last webinar on this last month. And that's good news for us. Uh, everyone's aware that some states uh, have uh, pending or uh, potential legislation out there which would change the presumption in a workers' compensation case. Uh, Illinois was the first state and it appears to be the only state that's now passed legislation that says if an employee is uh, in a essential uh, business, uh, so a, a business that's been deemed essential by our civil authorities and they've been allowed to conduct business, then any COVID-19 or coronavirus or infection claim would be presumed compensable. Now that did pass in Illinois and it's already, by the way, being challenged in the uh, Illinois court system. So determined whether or not that's actually gonna apply. But of course, New York and New Jersey uh, fellow, uh, their, their silly hearted legislatures have also proposed uh, uh, legislation that would mirror that. Uh, New York, same thing, saying a presumption for those in an essential industry. And New Jersey, of course, uh, Governor Murphy has no ideas in his head, and they just sort of copied and pasted uh, those ideas and pl placed them into a bill that's pending in the Senate as bill number 2380, which would create a presumption for those in an essential industry. I'm very pleased to report to you uh, that when the uh, New York has not passed it, when they uh, passed the budget, it did not get passed. New Jersey, uh, the legislature has been meeting via Zoom conference call. And as of uh, the time of this uh, webinar, uh, that's been pending for two weeks and has not passed. So the standard has not changed, the presumption has not changed. And this is frankly good news for us because by the way, in New Jersey, we've got a hundred years of case law, which shows that in general, communicable diseases, infectious diseases uh, in the normal business context are not compensable. The exception to that in New Jersey is for first responders who do get a presumption that if they uh, develop an infectious disease after being in contact with someone, and this has to be a verified contact with someone in the uh, line of duty uh, who has coronavirus, it would be compensable. That's not a new, that's not a change in their case law. That's been on the book since last July. So that has not changed. Uh, and I can report to everyone that the presumption, there is no presumption that a communicable disease in New Jersey would be compensable. In fact, just the opposite. Uh, in general, a communicable disease and one that everybody's exposed to is a general risk of just going about your daily business and going to the supermarket or other things is not compensable in New Jersey. So we should be disputing, denying, and challenging these cases. On our website uh, and to our clients, we've been providing a list of our recommended investigation questions. These are the initial questions you should be asking when a coronavirus or COVID-19 case comes in. New Jersey workers' compensation courts have been closed. Uh, to uh, petitioners or litigants appearing before the workers' comp judges. Uh, they've been essentially closed courtrooms and that will continue through May 11th, at which time we would expect there to be new guidance coming from the chief judge and director. Right now we are attending to hearings and we're doing it via conference call uh, and we've uh, set up our own video conferencing system. Not many of our adversaries have afforded themselves of that opportunity yet, but the judges are answering calls. Really the only thing that the court system in New Jersey is dealing with right now is emergent motions for medical and temporary disability benefits and motions for medical and temporary disability benefits. It is still possible to have a settlement get approved in New Jersey that would have to be done telephonically uh, and with an affidavit provided to the judge of compensation. So some things are still moving through the system, but in general, pretrial conferences, the normal conferencing that goes on to discuss settling a case, resolving matters, 
That is not currently occurring in New Jersey, and all in-person or person uh, personal appearances have been suspended until May 11th, uh, 2020. All right, uh, what else is going on? Case level, yep, we're starting to see COVID-19 claims here. Uh, we have just over 2,000 cases in active litigation, and a small percentage of them are now infectious disease claims involving COVID-19 and coronavirus, and that's across all jurisdictions we practice in. Uh, we haven't seen a long short one yet, but we have seen a bunch of New York, and we've seen some New Jersey ones. Uh, how are we defending these? Well, we are putting the petitioner to their proofs in most respects. We do expect the majority of the claims that we see for COVID-19 to be for short-term losses, uh, short-term lost time from work, and then people returning to the employment. Of course, we have uh, started to see claims that are for things that are not directly related to the virus. Uh, we're currently defending some post-traumatic stress disorder claims, as well as some anxiety claims resulting from employees who claim that going to work or being exposed in the workplace has caused them to develop an anxiety or PTSD disorder. Uh, so far, we do not have an example of someone who actually got the infection and then claims PTSD or anxiety, but I just wanna put that on everybody's radar screen, that those claims are out there and are possible. Now, if you have a question about COVID-19 or coronavirus or how we're defending these cases in New York, New Jersey, Longshore, please type it in and I'll answer that at the end of this webinar. All right, uh, I've said this a few times, but this is totally live. Please ask me as many questions as you want. It makes it so much more lively and fun to answer your questions about specific defense scenarios. Very happy to provide general uh, guidance to everyone on this call or this webinar. Uh, I will not say your full name. I'll just say your first name. I will repeat your question so everybody can hear it, and then I will jump into answering the question as best I can. All right. Uh, let's talk about today's topic, which is a jurisdictional topic. Today we are talking about the defense of non-employment in New Jersey. This is one of your strongest defenses, essentially saying, Judge, this person is not my employee, they're not on my payroll. Of course, it gets tricky, and New Jersey does have uh, a general bias and a lot of case law, which is uh, very favorable to the petitioner or claimant in having them uh, be found to be an employee. In general, the courts in the state do not like uh, someone being determined to be an independent contractor, being found to have no employer. Uh, and so in general, the case law is very favorable to the petitioner who claims that they are your employee. Uh, there is a definition of employee within Section 36 of the Act, which contains most of the definitions in the workers' compensation law. But essentially, the employee, anybody who's going to be deemed employee, has to show that they provide a service for consideration to the alleged employer. And the way they're going to be able to show that they're getting con consideration is they're going to be able to show either a pay stub or a W-2. Now, What's on a tax document is not going to be dispositive of whether somebody is or is not your employee. The courts don't really put a lot of credence in what somebody's tax status is, but certainly being able to show a pay stub or a W-2 showing the employer's name on it is going to be the best evidence that someone was actually someone else's employee. Uh, New Jersey is unique, or not unique, but one of the few states which says you cannot have a concurrent longshore claim. Our statute specifically says that if you have a longshore claim, you need to pursue it uh, in the federal system under the Longshore Act, and you cannot have a New Jersey and a longshore claim at the same time. That's very different from New York, where someone can be a longshoreman and claim to be your New York employee. Uh, New Jersey specifically carves out longshoremen and harbor workers uh, from its workers' compensation law, and their compensation would be uh, correctly obtained through the longshore uh, system. All right. What about uh, the problem areas? And here where we typically, you need to get guidance from your, uh, from me or from your attorney. How about sole proprietors? Sole proprietors, uh, owners of a business are not required to carry workers' compensation insurance and generally are excluded from workers' compensation insurance. Of course, they can elect to be covered by their workers' comp insurance, although these are the cases where I want us to have a lot of close scrutiny because typically that's a red flag. 
In general, the sole proprietor, the owner, the partner, president of a company would be excluded from their workers' comp policy. Where you see a claim come in and the person claims that they are the sole employee of the employment and they have elected themselves into the workers' compensation system, again, that's a red flag. We should be looking at those quite clearly. In general, sole proprietors may or may not be covered. How about owners? Same thing. Uh, my partners and I who own this business, uh, we've certainly excluded ourselves from our workers' compensation coverage. That's the first question we should be asking. Is this person really an employee? And really taking a look at what their classification is and whether they are correctly uh, classified as employee or not, or they elected out. Uh, what about people who are illegally in this country or perhaps undocumented, or as we refer to them here, pre-citizens? Uh, pre-citizens are entitled or eligible for workers' compensation. The fact that they don't have working papers, documentation, or the right to legally work in this state or this country really doesn't impact whether or not they can make a claim for workers' compensation benefits. Even if they can show that they were paid cash off the books, under the table, whatever you want to call it, uh, as long as they can demonstrate that they were employed uh, by the employer, they will be entitled to benefits. Now, this can be really problematic, and we particularly see this occur in the construction context, where you see uh, a day laborer, uh, a pre-citizen who gets injured on a work site, and they're not even certain maybe who their employer is. They're maybe not wearing a uniform. They've certainly filled out no tax documents. There's no I-9 possible, for example. And what they simply do is walk around the employment and take a picture with their cell phone of every single uh, you know, contractor truck that's on the work site and say, well, I work for one of these people. And so they'll bring a claim against all of them. Uh, it'll be likely that somebody is going to be found to be their employer, but these are cases that require close scrutiny. Uh, same thing for minors. Uh, illegal employment includes those who are not eligible to work and who, those who are under the legal age to work. However, they are still entitled to workers' compensation benefits and they may elect out of the system. So those are the sort of red flags or, you know, the areas where we really need to do a close scrutiny as to whether the person would be entitled as an employee to workers' compensation benefits. All right, let's talk about who is not an employee. I'm gonna start with some basics. Vendors, people that are providing a service, who are maybe uh, my, my paper delivery person from WB Mason who comes onto my property, slips, falls while making a paper delivery. Not my employee, that's a vendor. They're simply here to provide a service to me. Pretty clear that they're not my employee and would not be entitled to benefits. Subcontractors typically are not entitled to workers' compensation benefits from the general contractor. In general, they should have their own workers' compensation policy, although sometimes they fail to have that, in which case the employment will be deemed to travel up to the general contractor and there could be coverage there. Uh, who's not employee in general? Independent contractors. And we're gonna talk about independent contractors two slides from now. I'm gonna give you a sort of a definition of how they're looked at. But I'll just say this, and I think it's very important to say this again, just because somebody uh, has claims to be an independent contractor or they're getting paid as an independent contractor, doesn't really matter. Again, the courts are not going to look to the tax status or the filing status of a alleged employee in determining employment status. So it's we're going to require a little bit more of a deep dive, and I'm going to get to that in two slides. All right. New Jersey also recognizes dual employment, and this typically comes up in the lent employee scenario, lent or leased employee, or the temporary employee scenario. And this is where a staffing company or a leasing company is providing uh, for example, warehouse workers to a uh, facility, or they're pro uh, providing uh, skilled nursing or some other types of assistance to a general workplace. In general, 
uh, New Jersey will deem them to have dual employment. They'll say essentially the place you're providing service that's directing, controlling you, that's you know giving you the materials, you're wearing the uniform of them, that's generally going to be found to be your employer in addition to whoever's leasing you out or lending you out or staffing you, that staffing company. Uh, in those scenarios, we're going to generally look to the contract between the staffing company or uh, employee leasing company and the location or business entity and take a look at what those things say. Oftentimes, the leasing company, the staffing company, it will very particularly say, we indemnify or hold you harmless, harmless client for any injuries that occur to our employees, and we will accept the workers' compensation coverage for that employee. Of course, you get into some strange scenarios, and we can talk about them, particularly in the questions, uh, where maybe that indemnification isn't in place, or it's not being honored, or there's something else going on there. But we have to be a little bit uh, sensitive to those business relationships where the employee lending or leasing or staffing company, they really want to keep that client happy. And oftentimes uh, where the client's saying, this is not my employee, oftentimes we can just reach out to the staffing company and they'll say, yep, that is my employee. We're accepting the exposure and coverage here. We're going to take care of this. Uh, same scenario in contractors and subcontractors. Uh, the, uh, the employees of the subcontractor, if they're being directed and controlled by the general contractor, and there's no coverage there for the subcontractor, that exposure is gonna travel right up to the general contractor, and that's something to be mindful of. Really in the direct, uh, or sorry, the dual employment scenario, the thing we're looking at is who actually directs and controls this employee on a daily basis? Who's really giving them direction, uh, asking uh, whose uniform are they wearing? Those types of questions are gonna be really important to us determining how that relationship's gonna actually play out. All right, in the last, Real uh, sort of legal definition I'll give you here before we get into questions is what about independent contractors, Greg? You know, I've got people working on my work site and uh, Greg, I, I think they're all independent contractors. Well, here are the tests or the questions that the court or the judge of compensation are gonna ask us about that alleged independent contractor. First, again, who direct and controls them? Their day-to-day, -day, how independent are they really? Uh, if they're simply uh, taking direction from the alleged employer all day long and they're really not working on their own and they really are being uh, sort of managed and supervised closely, the courts are going to consider that. They're not going to really care what the contract says or that there was a contract. They're really going to look at who's in charge of them. Uh, the next thing the court's going to look at is who has the ability to hire and fire this employee or the employees of the alleged independent contractor. Really, if the person who they're providing service to has the right to say, I like this person, get them off my work site, I like that person, get them off my work site, the courts are going to say, you know what, you really are their employer because you are hiring and firing and selecting who's going to be on your work site from day to day. The courts are going to look to whether the businesses are truly the same. Is this a uh, construction entity uh, that is claiming all of their employees or really independent contractors, but really they only have one client, for example, and it's the construction entity, and they're really just doing the business of the construction entity day in and day out. Uh, the test has really got to be, are these two businesses the same, and are the entities really separate? Uh, if it's a, uh, uh, a realtor or a real estate owner who's got a company coming in to do its maintenance uh, or do its facilities repairs, that really is probably not the exact same business as the ultimate business owner or the, the target business owner. And so we'll be able to say, look, these two uh, employments are very differently characterized. They have different goals. They're not really the same business. There's truly two different entities. And when we say two different entities, I'm really looking for a separate business registration, a separate business name. Do they have all the indicia of a normal business? For example, do they have business cards? Do they have their own tax filing status? Um, if they're a trucking or transportation, do they have their own department 
of transportation number? Uh, what kind of licensing do they have? Is it separate or different or distinct from the alleged general employer? Uh, next, who controls the method of the work? You know, is uh, showing someone's an independent contractor, generally speaking, they're bringing their own tools, they're bringing their own expertise, and oftentimes they're bringing their own materials or consumables to the workplace. And so it's pretty easy for us to characterize them as a truly separate business and have that independent contractor status really be respected by the court. And the last thing is, does this other uh, alleged employee have their own workers' comp insurance? And this is particularly important in the transportation uh, or delivery context. The courts really want to make sure that everybody is deemed an employee of somebody so that they're entitled to some benefits. And if we're able to go to the workers' compensation court and go, look, uh, this company was making a delivery. Yeah, it was on our behalf. And, and yeah, it's an important part of our business. But look, Judge, they've got their own Department of Transportation number. They've got their own bill of lading. And they have their own workers' compensation policy, or even better, in, particularly in the independent uh, delivery context, they have their own occupational accident uh, policy. If we're able to point to that stuff, that's going to generally convince the court that this is truly an independent contractor and they were providing services to our business. And you know what? They might be a service to our core business, but it's different enough. And look, they've gone through, they've got their own business registration, their own name, uh, their own tax identification numbers. And look, they've got their own occupational accident policy or workers' compensation policy. That's going to be very useful in convincing the court that this is truly not our employee and instead is their own independent entity. All right. Uh, that's a little bit of an overview of the defense of employment, and this is a jurisdictional defense. It's a very powerful defense where we can show this person is not our employee, very useful to us in escaping any exposure or liability for any workplace accident. All right, I'm hoping that there are a lot of questions for me to answer today. Uh, and again, if you haven't typed your question in yet, please type it in now. I will read the full question so everybody gets the benefit of the question. I'll do my best to answer it. I'm also happy to answer questions about other topics, and particularly if you've got COVID or coronavirus uh, questions, uh, I'm happy to answer that as well. All right, uh, so Jill asked a question, and she says, does New York and New Jersey require a physical injury for a mental injury to be compensable? Okay, so neither state requires a physical insult, accident, or incident in order for a psychiatric claim to be compensable. And in fact, in some of the coronavirus cases that we've already uh, started to defend, they actually don't have a positive coronavirus or COVID-19 result. They simply have come forward and said, you know what, I'm scared. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to make deliveries uh, to these retail establishments that I've been making deliveries to. I don't want to step foot in another uh, person's business. I don't want to be exposed to the general public. And because of that, I have uh, uh, anxiety claim or PTSD claim. Now, both states will recognize what we call a mental mental injury. That's a psychiatric uh, illness or a psychiatric injury with no physical uh, incident or traumatic accident leading to that injury. So you can say, I got anxiety from this or that. Uh, and, and again, uh, people make anxiety claims alleging, hey, I was screamed at at work and I had a rough day and I'm, I've got anxiety now. In general, uh, mental, mental claims, uh, first of all, the, the burden of proof is on the claimant and, or petitioner to show there was something extraordinary and peculiar, something very distinct just to that employment, and that it was above and beyond what anybody else in that employment would experience. Uh, there's case law after case law in New York and New Jersey, which shows that, you know, sort of normal uh, stuff that you're exposed to in the workplace, for example, getting a bad review, uh, for example, getting criticized by your em employer, getting criticized by a supervisor, uh, getting uh, written up or being uh, documented for doing poor work or having a poor result. 
that stuff's all considered a normal incident of the employment and the presumption runs against that stuff being compensable. Where it is a mental mental injury, in general, the presumption is that the claimant must show something extraordinary or peculiar in order to be compensated. We don't think that there's anything extraordinary or peculiar about really any business that's going to uh, expose someone more or less to coronavirus or COVID-19 so that that presumption would run against the employer. And I've even had cases uh, that we're defending where they've uh, arisen in the uh, the health context where someone says, well, you know, I just don't want to go to work. I'm really scared. Or I, you know, I've, I've heard of other people in my employment have the condition. And for that reason, I have an anxiety or PTSD claim. We're, we're denying those and disputing those. And those should be disputed and challenged uh, because there's simply nothing unique to any employment um, that is it going to exceed anybody's normal exposure to the general public and so those should be challenged and challenged quite stringently all right uh that's my only question uh, that's I was hoping for more questions but uh if i spoke real fast and you didn't get a chance to type your question in please feel free to give me a ring or send me an email or uh, call me right after this uh, webinar i'll be happy to answer any question you have um Next month, we're going to talk about more about denial defenses. We're going to talk about a deep dive onto the general uh, defenses, and we're going to talk about how we challenge and defend uh, workers' compensation claims in New Jersey. So I hope you join us for that. In closing, I hope everybody's happy and healthy. I hope your family's great. I hope you're sort of enjoying this panic period uh, while everything sort of resets. Uh, we're here. Everything is working 100% at Lois. Uh, if you need us, we're here for you. Uh, please feel free to reach out to us. Okay, have a great day, everybody. Stay safe.